Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachrin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in History. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Gary Gerstel about his new book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era, from Oxford University Press. Professor Gerstel is the Paul Mellon Professor of American History at the University of Cambridge. The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order is the most comprehensive history of neoliberalism, an economic philosophy marked by its promotion of deregulation, globalization, and economic austerity. The long history of neoliberalism traces back to the 1940s, when the New Deal order was ascendant and unfettered capitalism had been relegated to the past by the horrors of the Great Depression. A group of economists and conservative activists laid the groundwork for a renewed faith in free markets, a faith that would come to be embraced by leaders in both major political parties. What makes Professor Gerstel's history of neoliberalism especially powerful is his ability to place neoliberalism's rise in a global context. The rise and fall of the neoliberal order is undeniably the most definitive account of neoliberalism in circulation today. Gary, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The first question I'd like to ask you is if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book. Well, I, uh, I'm an American um, who teaches in England at the University of Cambridge, where I have taught for the past eight years. And before that, I taught for a long time at several universities in the United States. It's hard to say where I'm from. I was, I'm a Cincinnati boy, born in Cincinnati, Ohio, but have lived 25 years in New Jersey, eight years in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, quite a number of years in New England as well. In New England and in the Boston area is where I currently have my uh, American home. Uh, many years ago, I, I, I published a co-edited book with Steve Fraser, a fellow historian, called The Rise and Fall of the New Deal Order, uh, which became quite influential in helping us think about politics and society from the 1930s to the 1970s. And I think the one of the most important contributions of that book was to move us beyond uh, uh, the preoccupation of political history with two and four and six year election cycles, presidents who's controlling Congress, and to look at longer intervals of American politics and to try and understand um, these longer intervals as privileging one party over another, privileging certain ideas uh, over another. And uh, uh, we tell the story there of the rise of the Democratic Party out of the Great Depression to a position of great dominance in American life, and then the story of how it came apart, apart in the 1960s and 70s. And I think I always wanted to uh, write a sequel to that um, book. I wanted to test our conception of political order on a different set of institutions, a different different time period. Um, but it wasn't until uh, what I call the neoliberal order began to crack up in the mid 20 teens that I thought this might be a viable project. And the idea actually popped into my head at an academic conference in Santa Barbara, California, University of California at Santa Barbara in um, 
2015, which was uh, the occasion of the 25th anniversary of the rise and fall of the New Deal order. And it brought together 70 scholars with all their accumulated wisdom and acumen about politics and society in, in America the last uh, uh, the last 70 years and listening to all those talks and beginning and reflecting on my own contributions to the rise and fall of the New Deal order and also beginning to grapple with the tumult of the last 10 years of politics, both in the United States and abroad. It did seem to me that uh, things were beginning to crack up and a, a dominant set of political beliefs and institutions were coming under the kind of serious question and uh, questioning and interrogation that they had not been under for some time, if ever. And that was the moment where I thought, okay, uh, perhaps we are living through the crack up of a of the successor political order to the New Deal order. And that's what I have named the neoliberal order. Uh, and I, in this current book, I, I track its rise uh, across the uh, 1970s, 80s, and 90s, its period of triumph and hubris, the last decade of the 20th century, first decade of the 21st century, and then it's uh, quite spectacular crack up across the second decade uh, of the 21st century. So um, it's uh, this is a, a, a way of thinking about political history that has been with me for some time, and uh, I saw an opportunity to to write about a second political order that seemed to me was as influential and as and as powerful and, um, as the New Deal order that I had written about many years ago, and I wanted to take a stab at, at trying to write its history. So, as you say, and as the the title implies, this book is about political orders. What is a sort of a basic definition of a political order? A uh, political order is a um, is a complex set of institutions, uh, ideas electoral constituencies, donors uh, that come together slowly and uncertainly over a significant period of time, uh, but eventually cohere into a powerful uh, political formation. Uh, these are complex structures. Uh, they don't arise overnight. There are efforts to establish new, new political orders. We may be seeing one now in terms of a progressive political order that Biden's trying to establish. We see how much difficulty he's having doing that. So one ha a political order has, it, it has to um, make its influence felt uh, across a, uh, a broad constellation of institutions, uh, think tanks, uh, PACs, uh, donors, um, intellectuals, uh, the ability to shape media, there have to be media institutions that are capable of getting out um, uh, the message. And also, I think political orders to be successful over a long period of time have to have a message about the good life and how to achieve it that is convincing to uh, a lot of uh, people. And if all the elements of a political order are in place, and if, they, if a general appears, a candidate for president who can lead them into battle and to triumph, and they have an opportunity to implant their ideas uh, and their institutions on American politics for a long period of time. And uh, if, in my understanding of what a political order is, if it's truly to be successful, it means not only getting uh, presidents uh, of one party uh, elected consistently over, over a, a long stretch of time, it means not only the ability to control at least one house of Congress and sometimes two, 
it means ultimately the ability to uh, compel the opposition party to submit to your key ideas, uh, especially in the realm of political economy. And thus, uh, to look for the success of a political order, I look not just on the rising Democratic Party of the 1930s and 40s, but what happens to the ideas of that rising Democratic Party in the 1950s when the first Republican president in 20 years takes office, this being Dwight D. Eisenhower. Uh, And the most significant element of his presidency, from my perspective, is that he chose not to dismantle the New Deal, the New Deal order that he he subscribed to most of its its core beliefs. And similarly, as I write the history of uh, the rise of the neoliberal order, uh, which is pioneered by the ascendant Republican Party of the 1970s and 80s, uh, led by Ronald Reagan, who wanted to create a free market, a powerful free market Republican Party. The true test of that political order's success is not Reagan's election, but what happens when the first Democrat after Reagan comes into office, uh, that being Bill Clinton, um, elected in 1992 and coming into office in 1993. Was he going to try and roll back what Reagan had instituted in terms of free market capitalism, low taxes, uh, weakening the power of labor, so on and so forth, uh, weakening the the welfare state? Or was he, in fact, going to endorse the deregulatory free market principles of Reagan and the Republican Party uh, of the 1980s? And I call Clinton in the book the Democratic Eisenhower, which is a nice shorthand for my answer. Just as Eisenhower, I argue, secured the um, New Deal order in the 1950s, so too Clinton secured the neoliberal order in the 1990s by bringing the Democratic Party on board with the core economic ideas of neoliberalism. Uh, and uh, so uh, the that those moments when the opposition party comes into power and are they going to resist, take apart what their predecessors have done, or are they going to acquiesce to those principles? That, for me, becomes a test of whether America at that moment is in the presence of a political order. And the story I tell of Clinton is is about his acceptance and his acquiescence to these very powerful political beliefs that Reagan and the Republican Party had put on the table in the 1980s. I don't tell the story in terms of um, politicians selling out or betraying a certain mission. I'm much more interested in the the power of ideas to compel acquiescence um, so that if if you're a Democrat in the 1990s, um, it's not that Clinton was born a committed free marketeer and was dying to implement these policies from the moment he got in the White House. But he comes to understand um, that if he's to be successful politically, if he's to get reelected, if the Democrats are going to have a chance to do anything they want to do, then he's got to have to try and take on these Republican ideas as his own and perhaps, if possible, turn them into something Democratic. And similarly, with Eisenhower, I think he made a calculation that even if he wanted to take down the New Deal and the big state that was now managing capitalism, he said there's no way to do that in 1950s America and for me to survive politically and for the Republican Party to survive politically. So uh, the emphasis is less on personalities than on the larger ideological and structural forces that compel a political party to acquiesce to 
the innovations ideological and institutional of its of the opposition that it is allegedly supplanting. What what does neoliberalism mean, and how does it differ from liberalism? And also, what is the the reason that this term is the one that you choose over potentially other terms? Thank you. Well, um, that's a complicated and yet essential question uh, that I that I deal with at some length um, in the book. Um, for me, neoliberalism means um, more than anything, a set of ideas that seeks to unleash the full power of capitalism. Um, that means um, weakening the uh, the state institutions that have been trying to manage capitalism and some larger public interest. It means freeing entrepreneurs. It means um, weakening uh, mechanisms of redistribution in a society, uh, transferring money through the government from the rich to the poor. It means weakening the welfare state. It means weakening the ability of organized labor to oppose the privileges and, and claims of capitalism. And it does this because of the belief that if you unleash the full power of capitalism, uh, you will have growth rates, um, uh, economic growth rates that are so substantial that um, everyone will benefit. And um, among those who consider themselves neoliberals or who I call neoliberals, everyone first and foremost means everyone in the same country uh, in the United States, uh, rich and poor, Neoliberals acknowledge that there will be a lot of any economic inequality uh, under a neoliberal regime, but they will insist that all votes will rise if the forces of capitalism are properly unleashed. Uh, neoliberalism is also a global project, which believes that uh, the greatest growth will come if the whole world is, is given over to capitalist enterprise, capitalist production with a minimum of interference um, by governments of, uh, in, in terms of limiting the ability of capitalists to do uh, what they wanna do. So, uh, so this is f first and foremost about um, uh, unleashing capitalist power and those who subscribe to neoliberal principles um, believe very strongly that the kind of strong state set up during the Great Depression under the New Deal to control capitalism, to manage capitalism, to acknowledge that capitalism was as much a destructive force as a creative force. Uh, neoliberals see that these restraints put on capitalist production were far too severe and uh, lead to a kind of economic tyranny on the part of the state. And for them, ultimately, it leads to um, political tyranny as well, the government becoming too powerful and telling individuals how, how to live. And so neoliberals, for, for them, the, uh, the worst outcome in society is, is communism or, or socialism, which means to them state control of everything. And they see that as a condition of economic unfreedom and also a condition of uh, political and cultural unfreedom. Uh, and so the goal among neoliberals is to create a world in which capitalism can penetrate everywhere. Uh, and be unleashed everywhere, and 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 so that everyone in the world can achieve a level of efficiency through free trade, free movement of people, free movement of capital, free movement of information. That's going to allow the forces of production to to realize their uh, their full potential. 
Now, the term most commonly used in the United States to describe what I've just described is conservatism, right? That it's the Republican Party. It's uh, to be a capitalist. One thinks of being a one thinks of the label conservative. That's the term that is being used in the United States. But I find the term uh, conservative uh, problematic because conservative conservatism means to conserve it means a high regard for continuity for tradition uh for pres preserving institutions as they, as they have been for um accepting uh existing hierarchies as being somehow bound up with nature whether it's the power of men over women in patriarchal families or the power of whites over blacks in the in the jim crow south uh this is what I regard as conservatism and a high regard for existing hierarchies, a sense that any change has to come if it comes at all slowly and organically uh, without disrupting the institutions of, of, of life too much. And capitalism and neoliberals don't have this affection for tradition. They are about uh, to use Joseph Schumpeter's term, creative destruction. Uh, they, they understand that capitalism revolutionizes things. It, it upsets traditions. It, it upsets ex accepted ways of living. It's about venture capitalism. It's about modernization. It's about invention. It's, it's about the IT revolution. It's, it's about startups in Silicon Valley. And I think among historians who've gotten too, have gotten too comfortable with the conservative label, and so they have tended, when they study conservatives, to study a lot, resistance to civil rights advances, resistance to um, liberation, uh, liberation movements among women, um, uh, among um, among gays, among uh, uh, racial mi mi uh, minorities, resistance to that, and all all those studies that we have done are are very very important. But I think because we've been preoccupied with conservatism, we have neglected uh, the quite extraordinary economic transformation of the last 50 years uh, in which capitalism has taken on new character, new technology, penetrated new markets. And it doesn't seem to me that the dynamism of this process, whatever you think about the outcome of it, whether you support it or critique it, it's such a dynamic, destructive, and both creative process that to affix the name conservative to it, um, and it within, which emphasizes traditions. Uh, seriously underestimates the incredible dynamism of this economic transformation. And uh, f for me, neoliberal captures that transformation uh, much better than conservatism does. You might say, and I think this is embedded in your question, well, why not just call this um, liberalism? And I talk in my book about, well, this neoliberalism is really quite close to classical liberalism of the 19th century. And what classical liberalism in the 19th century wanted to do was to free economies of the world from the encrusted layers of monarchs and aristocrats and their bloated states that wanted to use government just to enrich themselves. They didn't really understand how the economy worked and they didn't understand the importance of individual enterprise and individual initiative. They didn't understand Adam Smith about allowing people to truck barter and exchange um, as, 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 as they saw fit. Uh, and so liberalism wanted to unleash capitalism's power, wanted to unleash the power of markets. It was impatience with mo impatient with monarchs, mercantilists, aristocrats, move these people out of the way, inject market freedom into the ordinary transactions that people engage in every day, all kinds of new enterprises, commodities, 
economic growth will result from that. Um, and uh, this is cl classical liberalism, and neoliberalism is quite close to that. So you might ask, why not call this liberalism? Well, because in the early 20th century, uh, this liberalism was thought to have produced as much, as many negatives as positives. It, it unleashed this incredibly powerful capitalist system, but it also unleashed a, a business cycle that was vicious. And every, every boom was followed by a terrible bust in which people would be thrown out of work. Uh, unemployment, insufficient income, uh, uh, tr tr tremendous suffering from that, uh, and um, uh, and it was, and also the this capitalist system seemed to be always out of kilter. It was never stable, uh, and it seemed to be wreaking too much havoc and tragedy in people's lives. So there was a need to either find different ideologies that would substitute for liberalism. And some people went towards socialism and communism. But some people within the ranks of liberals began to say, we need a new liberalism. We need a liberalism that recognizes that capitalism's power has become too great, that the inequalities between rich and poor are, have become too divisive. And we need an, an ideology and creed that's going to um, Reform capitalism, manage capitalism, harness its inequity, uh, limit its inequities, shrink the distance between the rich and the poor, have a welfare state that will shield the casualties of this industrial system from the from its from its worst effects. Uh, and so, a new liberalism emerges in the 1930s, and Franklin Roosevelt is its architect, and he simply calls it liberalism. He calls it liberalism. It's not really liberalism. What it is is an American version of social democracy. If Roosevelt was in Europe, he would be called a social democrat. If the Democratic Party uh, of America was in Europe, it would be called a social democratic party, not just a democratic party. It's what Europe regards as social democracy. That is what liberalism in the 1930s became. That is what liberalism in America remains. And that is why we can't just call the effort on the part of neoliberals to recapture classical liberalism. We can't call that liberalism because that would hopelessly confuse it with Roosevelt and the Democratic Party and what they did in the 1930s and 40s. And so neoliberalism is another way of saying new liberalism. We can't call it the new liberalism of the Democrats because that already existed. So we call it neo liberalism. It gives it a distinctive term. Uh, and it suggests, in my telling, an affinity with the classical liberalism of the 19th century. And I hope that's clear. It's a complex story, but I, it's an important one. Uh, and if you have further questions about it that you would like me to clarify for listeners, I would be happy to answer those additional questions. I think that's a, that's a, a, a pretty good summary. I think some of the the specifics of, you know, or the differences of neoliberalism, because obviously neoliberalism, as you define it, is a, is a pretty big tent. There's people across the uh, uh, cultural spectrum that fit under this economic framework. Um, I think that, that, that before getting into even discussing the rise of the, uh, the neoliberal order, I think there's something really interesting that you do when you talk about the New Deal order is you suggest that part of the reason why the New Deal order was able to stick was due to this fear of communism, 
what was the influence that communism's rise had on the strengthening of the New Deal order in America and the West? Um, had a huge, it had a huge long-term impact. Uh, Theodore Draper, who was a prominent writer, once a communist and then a, a devout anti-communist, uh, but even in his anti-communist days, um, he, he referred to the 20th century as the communist century. Uh, we, we've lost that language today. What, he, what did he mean by that? He, he meant that the most important event of the 20th century was the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the coming to power of a regime that was radical and had an ideology dedicated to eradicating capitalism from the world, eradicating private property from the world, eradicating free markets from the world, because the conviction of the communists was that capitalism was such an evil system and such a system built on exploitation that it, it, its, its faults could never be remedied to the point where social, uh, 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 a regime of social justice under capitalist auspices might at some point be instituted. In other words, communists declared that what Franklin Roosevelt was trying to do in terms of re reforming and tame capitalism couldn't happen because capitalism was too powerful and, and the prerogatives of capitalists were too jealously and intently held. Uh, they, they would not relinquish them unless for, compelled to by a political party that was meant uh, to that that dedicated itself to expropriating all private wealth private wealth understood primarily as corporate wealth and putting it under the aegis of a state a state that had dedicated itself to the improvement not of individuals but of the working class of that society that's what communism was uh, and it imagined that intelligent direction from a state, um, understanding the evils of, of, of capitalism and wanting to eliminate capitalism, that uh, intelligent planners could manage an entire economy in the interests of all the members of that society or all the working class members of that society with a level of justice and even affluence that capitalist societies on, on their own would never achieve. Wherever communists came to power, they were going to eliminate capitalists from their midst, either literally through rounding them up and putting them in camps or even even killing them or stripping them of all their uh, private wealth and power so that they would become inconsequential economic players. There also developed as thinkers began to contemplate the power of communism and then the power of fascism, which was in a sense a right wing collectivist response to left wing communism. What develops is the theory of totalitarianism, that communism and fascism represented um, dictatorships of a novel and damaging sort. And not only were, the, were these regimes of unfreedom, these, uh, the, the, those who subscribe to the theory of totalitarianism were uh, critics of communism and fascism, but not only did they see in these regimes dictatorial centralized control the loss of all freedom on the part of individuals they also saw that uh, these these modern regimes had such power and such control of the media and were psychologically so astute about mobilizing popular opinion on their behalf and keeping the citizenry of their countries in a state of mobilized paranoia that they could manipulate 
the theory said that once a regime like this established itself, it could never be overthrown. You could throw overthrow traditional dictators. You could overthrow a king, a monarch, a sultan, um, a, a, a modern day dictator, a, a Putin you could overthrow, but you could not overthrow communists or fascists because they were had become expert in terms of controlling the population. And so there would never be a force within the population capable of mounting the kind of opposition necessary to to free a society from communist or fascist control. This theory turned out to be wrong. It turned out you could release societies from communist and fascist control, but this is not the point. In the 30s and 40s, it was believed that this could not happen. And thus, um, the threat of communist takeover had to be taken very, very seriously. Because once communists were successful, the game was over. You couldn't come in five years later and say, okay, we're going to get rid of the communists now. This, by the way, explains why America went to such great lengths to defeat communists in Vietnam in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, Vietnam had no intrinsic importance to the United States in terms of raw materials or in terms of markets that were essential to American capitalism. But the fear was Vietnam goes communist, you'd never get rid of them. Thailand might then go communist, you'd never get rid of them. Indonesia might then go communist, you'd never get rid of them. Japan might then go communist, you'd never get rid of them. South Korea would go communist, you'd never get rid of the communists. Of course, China was already um, uh, communistic. So what do you do in a situation like this where you feel that your opponent, once established, can never be defeated? You have to keep, you have to, you have to bend every muscle to stop them from coming to power. Now, internationally for the United States, this meant the uh, a foreign policy of containment and a military industrial establishment, establishment of the sort that America had never had before for such a long period of time, the willingness to fight communists everywhere and anywhere, wherever they appeared. What did this mean domestically? There were communists in the United States. There were communists in the labor movement. The, uh, for a long time, to be a communist was to be an idealist, uh, the, uh, a belief that you could supplant an economy of exploitation, which is how they saw capitalism, with an economy of abundance and fair distribution, which is how they saw communism. So it attracted quite a lot of support uh, in significant sectors of American society, uh, including in the labor movement. If you're a capitalist, um, you're worried about the presence of communists in American society. You're worried about the presence of communists in the labor movement. Uh, and you're worried that at some point in the future, communist, communism might triumph in the United States as it has elsewhere. And for you, this is a nightmarish scenario because, again, you're thinking once communism is established, uh, we lose our business, uh, we lose our money, um, we lose our enterprises, we lose our freedom, and we'll never get it back. So what does that incline you to do as a capitalist? It inclines you to compromise with your opponents, not communists, but workers at your plant, um, uh, workers elsewhere, with the working class more generally. It makes you more inclined to uh, what I call in the book a class compromise between capitalists on the one hand and the working class on the other. It means that capitalists 
uh, are willing to share a greater amount of their wealth, um, a greater amount of their profits. They're willing to grant workers more rights than would otherwise be the case. They're willing to tolerate strong unions in their midst as long as they're not communists than, than would otherwise be the case. Because these non-communist unions, they may be pests, they may be antagonists, but they're reasonable. We can deal with them. We can negotiate with them. We can reach a compromise that allows our businesses to thrive while also making certain concessions to the workers that these unions are representing. Uh, and so I portray the New Deal order as being a time of this great class compromise between workers and capitalists in the United States, um, where unions are, are granted the kind of power they have not had, they had, did not have before or since, where they're able to, where unions are able to, to rest wage increases of the sort that they had never been able to achieve before, where capitalists are willing to accept limitations on their wealth for the sake of prosperity for all. Uh, so the United States reaches a point um, in the early 60s, sort of at the high point of the New Deal order, where a chief executive of a corporation is making about 20 times what an average assembly line worker is making, about 20 times. That's still a lot of money. By the 1990s, after communism falls and after the neoliberal order triumphs, your average chief executive is making 300 times what the average assembly line worker makes. That's so from 20 times to 300 times. It's the 100 to 300 times inequality that be, that becomes impossible to sustain when the fear of communism was strong, and that this leads to uh, the the moment in American life where the gap between rich and poor shrinks to its smallest difference across the 20th century. Uh, and so un the unions are strongest when the fear of communism is greatest. The American welfare state for all its imperfections is strongest when the fear of communism is greatest. The inequality between rich and poor is at its narrowest in the 20th century when the fear of communism is greatest. In other words, the fear and threat of communism uh, imposes limits on what capitalists are uh, determined to do to achieve wealth and power and, 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 and pursue profits. And the ending of communism and the ending of uh, the New Deal order uh, gives capitalists license to not have to worry about this kind of compromise anymore. And the kind of compromise I'm talking about, which which flourished during the heyday of the New Deal order in the 1950s and 60s after 1991 when communism falls doesn't exist anymore. I think it'd be hard to identify in America today uh, the kind of class compromise that is anywhere close to what was what both sides agreed to in the 1950s and 60s. When you're discussing the the end of this New Deal order, you you point out three uh, things in particular. Uh, you point out conflict, growing conflicts over over race, the Vietnam War, uh, and also uh, stagflation, uh, and that all of these three things coming together laid the groundwork for some pretty unorthodox ideas to start to come into the mainstream. 
who were these thinkers, specifically economists like Friedrich Hayek, who started to, and Milton Friedman, who started to gain significant influence? And what were their ideas and their critiques of the New Deal order? Uh, Friedrich Hayek was um, an Austrian Viennese economist. Uh, Milton Friedman was uh, American born and bred, um, a Jersey boy. A New Jersey boy uh, 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 originally, um, and uh, becomes a very prominent uh, member of, of the uh, University of Chicago economics faculty, where Hayek also sp spends the ten years from nineteen, uh, well, more than ten years, nineteen in the nineteen fifties and uh, early sixties, uh, and they um, uh, are. Um, radical critics of the kind of managed capitalism that was the New Deal's calling card. Um, they uh, worried about large states. Um, they, they thought that state planning didn't work. They thought that the kind of tools that uh, the planners of the New Deal, New Deal era were using, Keynesian tools, um, uh, especially fiscal deployment of fiscal policy you 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 flood the economy with expenditures during a time of um, depression and you pull back on federal spending once the um, business cycle returns to its 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 upside they they thought that that these techniques didn't work very well that they hampered uh, growth that uh, planning of a market economy was incredibly difficult to do and that um, the most efficient way in which economies should operate were to leave decisions about buying and selling who to work for where to put your energies should be left to individuals on the one hand and individual enterprises on the other they fully recognized that market economies would make mistakes uh, that people would make mistakes that there would be bankruptcies People would lose their investments, but they also believed that out of this, out of a free market society, would come the best possibilities for innovation, uh, economic growth, um, uh, and affluence for everybody over the long term. They also uh, worried a great deal that economic, what they called economic unfreedom, which is how they interpreted the New Deal, would lead to conditions of political tyranny where governments would not only try and regulate the economy, but they would try and regulate your individuality uh, and thus suppress what they, what, well, what Friedman, even Hayek, who, who was not an American, regarded what loved most about America, which was the freedom of, of individuals to do what they wanted to do, to be spontaneous, to, to follow their interests, to follow their passions, to, to invest their money wherever they they wanted to. So it was an argument not just for economic freedom, but for political freedom as well. These voices are voices in the wilderness in the 1940s, 50s, and even uh, in the beginning of the 1960s. Uh, they get some traction in Barry Goldwater's uh, run uh, nomination by the Republican Party in 1964, but Barry Goldwater suffers a catastrophic defeat at the hands of Lyndon Johnson. And so this is an, uh, a repudiation of those free market beliefs that Goldwater believed uh, very deeply. And it's only uh, through the complex um, 
interplay of the factors that you noted, uh, the inability of America to solve its race problem, the inability to either win the war in Vietnam or to extricate itself, uh, and both managing the race problem and managing, managing the war in Vietnam became um, extremely expensive and began to stress the finances of uh, the government and began to overheat the economy and 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 produce inflation and then on top of those two ins, insoluble problems um, came a massive reconfiguration of the international economy uh, that was sparked first by the revolt of uh, of um, commodity producers in the global south i'm thinking first and foremost of petroleum producers the Middle East, uh, the global north running uh, running its economies on vast amounts of cheap and limitless uh, energy. And uh, this is also a period of decolonization and of nations of the global south trying to get their freedom and emerge from colonial and neo-colonial circumstances. And what happens in the 70s is, is especially the petroleum producers are able to release themselves from U.S. and British control set the own price for their oil at the first time, dramatically raise the price for oil uh, that the West was going to have to pay if it wanted if it wanted those supplies. And this um, kind of radical reorder, reordering of trade at the same time that European countries and, and East Asian countries are becoming competitors for the U.S. Since the, for the first time since before the World War, this causes circumstances of stagflation it means the New Deal toolkit for managing the economy is no longer working. And it is only in the 1970s, really, that people like Friedman and Hayek, who have been talking about the virtues of free markets and the virtues of, of pulling down the state controls of the economy, it's only then that they begin to get serious traction. And Reagan becomes their tribune. He runs much more successfully uh, for the Republican nomination in 1976 than anyone expected he would. He doesn't win the nomination, but it puts him in very good position uh, to be the front runner for the 1980 nomination. And that, of course, is the big election that's going to vault him into the White House. Uh, there's been a tendency among some people who study Hayek and Friedman and others who are part of this neoliberal universe to read their influence back into the 1940s and 30s. Their ideas are are fully or are largely formed by then 1930s and, and 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 40s and early 50s but they don't really begin to impact american society until the 1970s when the political order of the new deal is breaking up and it's in this moment when a political order is breaking up when it loses its power to compel the opposition to subscribe to its core beliefs it's at this moment of crack up that allows ideas that have been on the margins, which is true of the neoliberal ideas, to be released from the margin and to begin to compete in the mainstream of American life for um, favor among very large constituencies of Americans. And if we want to ask when does neoliberalism really begin to take root in a serious and popular way, it's in the 1970s as a result of the conflicts in American society over race, Vietnam, and how to govern an economy that suddenly seemed resistance to, resistant to all the usual forms of state intervention. So e even though oftentimes in tellings, and this is certainly what I thought, Ronald Reagan 
is sort of presented as the first neoliberal president, uh, I, I think you do a, an interesting job of sort of demonstrating how Jimmy Carter had neoliberal tendencies. Would you would you call Jimmy Carter the first neoliberal president, or do you think that Ronald Reagan is is the more consummate uh, starter? I would agree with both those statements of yours. <laughs> uh, I think um, I think we we can look back at Jimmy Carter's presidency now and. Um, and see that he was um, he was verging on uh, neoliberal ways of thinking, uh, but he 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 uh, he and I think the most enduring legacy of his presidency domestically is the deregulatory work he did to deregulate the airlines, to to deregulate the trucking industry, and he also set in motion a massive deregulation of the of AT&T, which was then a monopolistic um, public utility, authorized to be monopolistic, but also heavily regulated by government uh, to deliver phone service to every American. You had no choice then about where you're going to get your phone service from. Everyone got it from AT&T. Uh, so he, he, is, he is the first deregulator of telecommunications. It's got to go much further when the neoliberal order reaches its peak in the 1990s. So yes, and I think he's, uh, he also, if you look at his speeches now, you'll see um, how frustrated he was with what he regarded as excessive government regulations. He wanted to, to, to shrink government. He was insistent on saying that there are many problems that government can't solve. He had no special affection for the New Deal, comes out of a very um, different tradition. And um, so he had... Uh, I would say he definitely had neoliberal strivings in him. The reason I hesitate to call him a the first neoliberal president is that he did not really have a clear doctrine about what he wanted to do economically. What what characterizes his presidency, I would say more than anything is chaos and he had these uh uh, neoliberal uh, stirrings. He was clearly drawn to this. He, he didn't know what to call it, but he, he was, we might say, the first deregulatory president uh, since the New Deal, much more so than Nixon and Eisenhower, uh, certainly. But he was also very uncertain about what to do. So while one month he might be a deregulator, the next month he was calling um New Deal economists, uh, Keynesians, those who wanted to restore the class compromise of the 1930s and 40s and reinvigorate it with new life. And there was a big package of labor reform of, proposed in 1977 and 1978 that during his presidency that would have done just that. Uh, so one, the one month he's, he's a neoliberal, the next month he's, he looks like a New Dealer. And uh, I think this suggests that he's living um through what is a transitional moment he recognizes that the times are changing and that new kinds of economic ideas might be necessary and he's willing to experiment with them but he's he's too uncertain and too uh unsure of himself in this respect to really to really commit to them fully and so i think what you get instead is a presidency of chaos and confusion even though as we look back on that presidency now we can see neoliberal stirrings that are going to continue and and then flourish uh, under Reagan. Reagan, by contrast, had been honing these ideas uh, by the 
um, you know, by 1980, he had been honing these ideas for 30 years. Uh, you know, my generation, you have no firsthand memory of Reagan. I do. And, you know, we were pretty contemptuous of him in the, in the 1980s. He just seemed like a lightweight. He didn't seem to read books. He seemed to get all his information from the movies. Uh, he made stuff up all the time. He didn't seem able to keep fact straight from fiction. And yet, you know, this is, this is a man who on train rides in the 1950s, he didn't like to fly, was reading Hayek um, and other neoliberal economists. Uh, he was giving speeches to all 125,000 employees of General Electric about the virtues of the free enterprise system. You know, he had been thinking much more systematically about these ideas than Carter ever did. And so he is an ideologue in ways that Carter is not. And I don't mean an ideologue in a critical sense. Is that I, I guess it has a negative connotation. So let's just say he had an ideological commitment to neoliberalism that, that Carter did not. And so that's why I agree with the, the second version of your question, which is, yes, it's in Carter, the stirrings are there, but the the plan doesn't really gain coherence until uh, Reagan is elected president, and then he's able to deploy a series of policies that he's been thinking about, and, um, and in some cases, as governor of California, practicing for quite some number of years. When when Reagan is elected in 1980, he he trounces Carter. Some of that probably uh, a repudiation of Carter uh, more than just a endorsement of Reagan. Uh, but with the election of Reagan, there is a, a figure that rises: the the Reagan Democrat, um, and Reagan is able to put together this coalition of people that I think fall under this banner of neoliberalism. And there's a term that you use, uh, I'm not sure if it's your coinage or if it has uh, other origins, but the neo-Victorianism. So what is this kind of coalition that Reagan puts together? And what is this idea of neo-Victorianism that you put forward? Well, the first thing to say about Reagan is, is that he's coming into office uh, after a long period of time where uh, Republicans have not been very successful in assembling enduring majorities or winning both houses of Congress. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make the Republican Party into a majoritarian party. And uh, Reagan is successful in bringing two new constituencies into the Republican Party. First are white Southerners um, who had been voting uh, Democratic for more than 100 years. Uh, and for them to be a member of the Democratic Party was many things, but it meant that the Democratic Party would defend Jim Crow and, and practices of white supremacy in, in the American South. And this is something the Democratic Party is committed to from before the Civil War um, right through the Reagan years. And it's only under Truman in the late 40s that the Democratic Party begins to commit itself to civil rights. And it doesn't commit itself fully to civil rights until the 1960s. Uh, and the man who um, commits the Democratic Party to civil rights is Lyndon Johnson, a white Southerner himself, growing up in circumstances of white supremacy. And Johnson understands that this is something America has to do, that the the bill for racial injustice has become due. In fact, it's overdue and the bill has to be paid and justice has to be done. And the 
and the Civil Rights Act has to be passed and the Voting Rights Act has to be passed. And he, he commits to that. But he also says at this moment, this is probably going to cost the Democratic Party, the white South. And he's correct in that. So uh, uh, Reagan um, appeals to the, the white South, and it's an appeal couched on the one hand in racial terms. Uh, and on the other hand, it's couched in uh, religious terms because uh, the Democrats have been working to remove religion from schools and from other public places because the feeling was that if you allowed religion to enter public places, certain religions would triumph over others, which it would then violate the, the guarantees of uh, freedom of religion and the and the First Amendment to the Constitution. Um, so uh, he's able to attract white Southerners on religious and evangelical grounds. These are people who are upset that prayer has been banished from public schools, um, resulting from Supreme Court decisions in the 1960s and 70s. The other constituency that Reagan is able to attract are the uh, so-called Reagan Democrats. These are northern white ethnics um, uh, who have are feeling who who are, are feeling left behind by many of the civil rights struggles and what they take to be the privileging of black grievance over their own grievances and so they are another constituency up for grabs and reagan brings them both um into the republican party and the they become critical constituencies for his success uh, i'm not the first person to use victorian or neo-victorian um in this context, but let me explain uh, what it means. If you're like Reagan and um, and and you want to free the market from constraints, how are you to ensure that all all people are going to be able to enter the market and behave responsibly? How do you know that they won't spend too much time going to baseball games or too much money spent on alcohol or um, or, or buying too many pornographic magazines or be seduced by what the market is constantly producing or, or spending more than they have or risking and in, in, in indebting and impoverishing the family. This was something that Republicans worried quite a lot about uh, because they understood that um, creating a society of market freedom was going to maximize individual freedom and opportunity. And there would probably be a bunch of people who would not make the right decisions about being moral and about being responsible. And if you're not willing to use the government to discipline people, who's going to discipline people? And the answer they gave is, well, the family and not just any family. It'll be a certain kind of family. It'll be a family that is patriarchal, governed by a strong man, where the woman does not work and is not a feminist and understands that her primary responsibility is to take care of the home and inculcate morality in the young and and raise them to uh, to be good citizens. And this strong patriarchal household with the traditional morality um, and clear gender roles and no space for women's liberation and no space for homosexuality or, or gay marriage, a certain kind of family was it, had to be governed by a male patriarch, that was it. Um, the 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 many republicans believe that if this ideology was strong it would provide people with the discipline they needed to engage responsibly with with market forces and one of the key 
architects of this point of view was Gertrude Himmelfarb, who was a historian of 19th century Britain. And what she said about 19th century Britain was, look, this was the age of Queen Victoria, hence Victorian. And they had a free market economy married to really strong family life. And it worked for them. And we can reproduce those circumstances, hence neo-Victorianism. A new Victorianism will do the same work in 1980s America as it did in 19th century Britain. Now, people like um, Gertrude Himmelfarb, married to Irving Kristol, who published a very important conservative journal called The National Interest, they were small in number. Um, a lot of them were Jewish. They were not Protestant or Catholic. But they articulated a set of beliefs that got picked up by a mass movement associated with Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority, because Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority also wanted to marry free enterprise to strong family life. And if you could marry those two things together, um, then um, you could successfully merge um, markets and morality in a way that would sustain markets over the long term. This is part of Reagan's message. And you might ask, well, how does, um, how does all this um, fit in with getting the government out of the economy? Well, Reagan was quite clever in this respect because he wanted to, he was clear he wanted to free up the market, but he said, um, listen, the government is fouling things up by telling your schools that there can be no prayer in the schools. Those should be your decisions, mom and dad, about whether you want little Johnny or little Susie to say a prayer in public schools. It should not be a, a government decision. If you elect me, I will free up markets, but I will also um, free you from having to worry about a strong federal government telling you where religion, where a prayer can and can't be said. I will free you from the social engineering schemes oriented toward racial justice that the Democrats have been cooking up. Um, if you become part of my coalition, uh, and if you join my desire to remove oppressive governments from economic and cultural life, we will flourish because we'll have a free market and we will have these strong families, which the Republican Party will encourage. And through that union, we will preserve and enhance the success of market economies for the long term. That's the plan anyway. That's the ideology. Uh, and that's what neo-Victorianism is. And it emerges out of the recognition that a true free market economy carries with it certain perils. Not everyone can be disciplined enough. And so you need a force that's going to provide that discipline. If it can't be the state, if it can't be government, then it has to be the family itself. A family of a certain sort, patriarchal, women knowing their place, children respecting the authority of the father. Uh, these are the kinds of families that will produce good, virtuous, and market market successful Americans. And one of the, the major ways that they're able to do this in Reagan's era is through the court system. What was the sort of uh, the the court strategy that Reagan employed? And how did some of these uh, judges help pave the way for neoliberalism to take root? Well, I have a long section on the on the courts under Reagan and in 
in my book, and this uh, brings us back to where we began about what is a political order and um, part of what a political order has to do, it has to have a a jurisprudence uh, and has to have a, I would argue, a legal philosophy. And um, the Republicans understood and the neoliberals in their ranks understood that the New Deal had succeeded because uh, they were able to get um, judicial sanction for a vast expansion of the powers of the federal government to the point where the government became involved in all sorts of areas in which it had not previous, previously been involved, in terms, especially in terms of regulating the economy um, in the public interest. And Reagan wanted to get the government out of the economy when he wanted to release the the full force of of markets, and in order to do that, he had to uh, felt he felt he had to roll back the um, the regulatory force of government that had developed from the 1930s to the 1970s. Whether it's a government regulating labor relations, or whether it's a government uh, uh, demanding certain occupational health and safety standards at workplaces, or whether it's the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, establishing certain rules about um, about climate and 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 pollution, uh, whether it was a Civil Rights Act and affirmative action, which required a a, a pretty large state-sponsored program of social engineering that we call affirmative action to uh, engineer social justice and and racial equality. And um, the uh, Reagan undertakes through his attorney general, Edwin Meese, who establishes a society called the Federalist Society to begin a long march of appointing conservative or neoliberal judges to the courts that are going to begin a campaign to roll back um, federal power and um, uh, and federal oversight with the idea that the judicial justification for government regulation will be undercut. And the, and, and the Republicans feel they have a strong constitutional case to make. They feel that the, uh, that the Constitution was on their side. They feel that first the Roosevelt Court and then the Warren Court in the 1960s overstretched the boundaries of their power. They stretched the Constitution into shapes that it was never meant to be stretched into. They embraced the philosophy of originalism um, associated with Antonin Scalia, a key Republican judge appointed by Reagan in the 1980s. And they say, if we return the Constitution to its original interpretation, which we argue this is how it should be reinterpreted, then we have judicial justification for reversing a bunch of Supreme Court decisions that had the effect of expanding the regulatory power of government. They had the conviction that this expansion was constitutionally illegitimate, and if they had the right judges in place, that they would be able to not simply stop further expansion of this government, but to roll back existing regulation in so many areas of American life. And this becomes uh, a central part of the Reagan neoliberal uh, revolution. There's an understanding they can't accomplish this in four years or eight years. That's a much longer term project that it was gonna have to be a long march through the courts, through all levels. And it was probably gonna be some time before they had a majority um, uh, of the Supreme Court of, of their desire. But if we look at what the court is now, 
in America in 2022. I would say the Edwin Mises and the Ronald Reagans of and the Antonin Scalia's of the world of the, of the 1980s would be quite pleased with the court that has emerged and they would judge the long march through the courts into uh, upend prevailing Warren Court jur jurisprudence, they would pronounce that project a major success. And the goal, of course, was the the neoliberal goal of, of freeing the economy from shackles. And some of these shackles have been imposed um, by regulations passed by Congress that were then whose constitution, constitutionality was then upheld by the courts, which Republicans in the 1980s considered to be an illegitimate interpretation of the Constitution, and hence their determination to repeal and reverse. Yeah, as you, as you mentioned, the, the, the march of deregulation, you know, with Carter and the airlines, then uh, Reagan and the... Um, the repeal of the, the fairness doctrine, uh, sort of unshackling media companies and allowing for the growth, the sort of explosive growth of um, partisan media. Uh, then, you know, of course, uh, in this moment, sometimes referred to as the unipolar moment out of nowhere, the uh, Soviet Union collapses. Uh, can you talk about the collapse of the Soviet Union and how this collapse kind of paved the way for the hardening of the neoliberal order? Well, Reagan was um, had been a avowed and determined anti-communist <clears throat> since the late 1940s. So by uh, 1990, um, he had been at this for 40 years. He considered communism to be the worst form of tyranny that the world had ever seen, and he committed in, himself to um, obliterating it from the face of the earth. Uh, and he was confrontational with the Soviet Union in ways in which many of his predecessors were not, calling it the evil empire, um, suggesting at various moments his willingness to use um, small nuclear weapons on the European battlefield to roll back the overwhelming tank power of the Soviet Union. And, and so he is confrontational. He, he vastly expands the military. He undertakes what is derisively called um, Star Wars. He wants to build a dome in space that would stop all incoming nuclear warheads uh, from the Soviet Union. Um, most people in America thought he was crazy, but the Soviets did not. They took this as a serious threat um, and a, something that would seriously unbalance the Cold War and felt they couldn't match what the U.S. was doing. So Reagan wants to bring the Soviet Union down, but... Uh, everyone is surprised and shocked by the, the rapidity and speed of its fall. And I, I talk in the book about, I think there's no precedent for an empire of this size and this power simply dissolving itself over a course of two years from 1989 to 1991. There was a reformer of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, who somehow maintained the belief in humanitarian socialism, even as he was climbing the ladder to the top host in the Soviet Union, and he's committed to reforming communism and making it socialism with a human face. And when that proves impossible, he's, he's willing to let the Soviet Union simply dissolve rather than do what most people in that position would do, which was to bend every muscle to maintaining an empire, 
even as an empire in decline. Um, the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire declined for 100 years or more. The Austrian-Hungarian Empire was in decline for a long period of time. The uh, Roman Empire was in decline for a long period of time. We might think of the American Empire now being in a, a period of long-term decline, but rarely do do empires take it upon themselves simply to dissolve themselves and remove themselves from the face of the earth. And that is what uh, the Soviet Union does. And it's an extraordinary moment in in world history. And uh, uh, and it marks not just the death of the Soviet Union, but it marks an admission by the leaders of the Soviet Union that communism as an ideology um, can't be saved. And thus, it's better simply disappearing from the world. Uh, and uh, Reagan is no longer president when this happens. This happens under the presidency of his successor and former vice president, George H.W. Bush. And, uh, uh, and, and this is regarded in America as a great triumph uh, because America's chief antagonist uh, removed itself from the face of the earth. Uh, Reagan himself and people around him take full credit for it because he was no longer willing, he declared, to engage in peaceful coexistence with such a terrible adversary. He was going to put enormous pressure on, on them. And then the Republicans took credit for this triumph. In fact, the circumstances causing the fall of the Soviet Union are complex, as much internal as they are external. We don't have time to get into that uh, today. But the point is, it's regarded in America as a great triumph uh, for America, for capitalism, and for the American way of life. And uh, suddenly the world becomes open to capitalist penetration in a way that it had not been open since prior to the First World War. Because wherever communism triumphed in Soviet Union, China, Eastern Europe, um, uh, some Middle Eastern countries for a while, some African countries for temporary periods of time, uh, wherever this triumphed, those countries removed themselves from global capitalist patterns of exchange and suddenly there's no more communism. There's no more wall against capitalism. Suddenly capitalism and capitalists can go anywhere and find markets in any part of the globe. Uh, and so this becomes, as you referred to, the great unipolar moment for America, the moment of great triumph. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the uh, Last, uh, Francis Fukuyama, who writes The End of History and The Last Man, or maybe it's The Last Man and The End of History, can't remember right now, a 19, bestseller of 1992. It's not The End of History, but he says something uh, very important. He said with the death of communism, he did not like communism, but he respected it as um, an ideological force that appealed to tremendous numbers of people. And he says with the passing of communism, the last universal alternative to liberal capitalism passed from the world. I think he correctly ass assesses the significance of communism's passing. The last universal alternative to liberal capitalism passes from the world. Now, there are regional uh, resistance to capitalism. If we can look at Iran and the theocracy they have there, there are other countries that remain resistant to capitalism in one form or another or take themselves out of an international capitalist marketplace. But there's no universal alternative 
to capitalism after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that marks, I think, a very important turning point in world and American history. And so this is the moment when capitalism can be triumphant universally in ways it had not been since prior to the First World War and perhaps had never been. So it represents a global conquest and America is the capitalist nation par excellence. So it's the nation best positioned to take advantage and prosper from this state of affairs. So after the uh, the presidency of George H.W. Bush, there is a challenger in 1992, a young upstart governor from Arkansas. Can you tell me about this race and how the Clinton presidency marked a definite shift in the Democratic Party away from the New Deal order and what you refer to as that, that acquiescence to this new neoliberal order? Yes. Uh, uh, Clinton had been governor of Arkansas uh, for about 10 years, 1982 to 1992. Uh, long had dreams of ascending to the highest office in the land. Uh, um, extremely talented man, both intellectually and politically. Um, you put him in a room of policy walks and he could go, go at it with the best of them on virtually any subject, um, love policy and very creative about its application. But politically, he was also um, very strong. Um, uh, he, he came from hard scrabble roots, a poor white Southern boy, didn't grow up with much, um, kind of learned the ways of the South, uh, not just as a white boy, but I think uh, also under, understood race relations in the South and early on became a racial progressive. Uh, he, he loved to meet people. Um, he was tremendously charismatic, especially in personal conversation. When he, if he grabbed your elbow, looked you in the eyes, gave you that twinkle and that smile. And a lot of people fell under his sway. And he, he loved what we might call retail politicking, pressing the flesh getting out the votes. And so he, he was a tremendously talented politician. Uh, no one really took him seriously, which is not surprising given he was a governor of a small, poor, rather inconsequential state. But uh, not uh, most of the Democratic frontrunners or people who were expected to be Democratic frontrunners decided not to run in 1992 because George H.W. Bush was running for re-election and he had just won a war the first Iraq war uh, and had acquitted himself well. And at one point his approval rating was like 90% and no one wanted to challenge him. And Clinton says, this is my opportunity. Well, between the, the victory in that war, which is 1991 and, and um, the election of 1992, there was a pretty serious recession and George HW Bush was not a successful retail politician. He, He's from a blue blood Connecticut old Republican family. Even after he moved his family to Texas, um, he he never adopted the Texas Southern way of of doing politics. So he was not a very effective campaigner. <clears throat> I think uh, Bush still probably would have won, but for the entrance into the campaign of a third party candidate named Ross Perot, uh, a, a wily 
um, Texas billionaire with a populist touch. And he got into the campaign because uh, he was upset about the North American Free Trade Organization uh, a treaty, uh, which was meant to turn all of North America into a common market and eliminate borders between Mexico and the United States and between Canada and the United States. Uh, and this was an example of the neoliberal policies that were beginning to triumph in the wake of the, commun uh, of the Soviet Union's collapse. Uh, but he was an early populist in a in a Trump mold, and he he thought this is going to bring nothing good to the average American working man, by which he meant the average American white working man. Uh, and so he ran against Bush and achieved about 19 percent of the vote. Um, and I think Bush uh, received about uh, 40 percent of the vote, and that allowed Clinton to slip into the White House with a plurality. 43% of the vote. And it's important to recognize that he was not at this point elected by a majority of the American people. He was elected fair and square, three-way race, and he had the most votes. There was no contestation of the results of that election. But I think it's important to recognize that a Democrat was coming into office with only 43% of the vote, and that perhaps might limit what he could do. Uh, he's not, he does not embrace um, neoliberal ideas from the start. He's got quite ambitious plans for um, reforming health care and succeeding where previous presidential reform, uh, Democratic presidents have failed to, to have some effective system of national health insurance for all the American people. He's got, he's got ambitious plans there. He's got uh, ambitious plans elsewhere. Uh, and um, it's only when he runs a very poor campaign to get health care passed. Uh, and it's only where some of his other, when some of his other early initiatives failed. And then he gets clobbered, not personally, but his party gets clobbered uh, in the 1994 elections by Newt Gingrich, a fiery Republican, and his contract with America. And the Republicans through Newt Gingrich take both houses of Congress for the first time, for the first time since 1952. So this is a humiliating moment for Bill Clinton because he becomes the first um, Democratic president since um, Truman was elected in, well, Truman wasn't elected in 1944, but since Truman, the, the first sitting president to lose Democratic president to lose both houses of Congress when he's president. So this is a crushing blow to him. And he decides at this point that um, he is, uh, whatever plans he came into office with, um, that if he's to be reelected re in 1996, he can no longer go with a progressive Democratic platform. And that the only way to success lies with uh, accepting that the ideas of the, of the Republican Party were dominant, that these were neoliberal ideas, that these were ideas about deregulation, shrinking the size of government, freeing market energy, um, removing the heavy hand of the state from the economy. He decides this is the way to make the Democratic Party successful in the 1990s. And I talk in some detail in the book about his quite 
stunning record of deregulation uh, of in, in the 1990s. He declares in 1996 that the era of big government is over. This is a Democrat declaring declaring that the era of big government is over. He passes a telecommunication bill that uh, deregulates the burgeoning telecommunications industry, which is going to be the most important industry of the early 21st century, because this is this is the Internet. This is social media. Um, uh, These are cable television companies. These are satellite companies. This this is the information revolution, which is gathering its forces and about to burst. And he passes legislation that basically says we are going to allow you companies to do whatever you want to do. We are not going to make the Internet a public utility subject to public regulation, as was the case under the New Deal. We're going to deregulate this industry. He then deregulates um, the electrical generation industry. You know, where is where are Americans getting their electricity from? This has been this had been a heavily regulated heavily regulated industry it becomes deregulated he then is also in 1999 got to sign off on the repeal of the glass-steagall act uh, which was a critically important new deal piece of legislation that separated commercial from investment banking uh, and prevented those involved in commercial banking from getting into investment banking and prevented uh, investment bankers from getting into commercial banking and this law, probably more than any other, brought a kind of stability to the financial industry and to Wall Street of the sort it had never enjoyed before. Uh, so he signs off on that, too. And he also signs off in 2001 of his last acts of office. He refuses to offer any serious public public regulation of a new kind of security that are that's coming to be called derivatives, which are going to be so important in the early 21st century. So if you look at his record of deregulation, it's as impressive and even more impressive than what Ronald Reagan had executed in the 1980s. Uh, And uh, now these are laws that are being passed by Congress. Uh, 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 Clinton is not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. There's a lot of support for uh, these projects in Congress on both sides of the aisle. But for me, this becomes a measure of the degree to which the Democrats are willing to acquiesce to an agenda of Republican Party neoliberal politics. Reagan was the architect. Clinton was the key facilitator. And so by 2000, one can say that the neoliberal order has triumphed in a way that it had not when Reagan left office in early 1989. You mentioned in the book that a lot of commentators of the 1990s discuss the culture war elements of it. And you say that despite Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton's fierce rivalry, there was still a lot of uh, consensus on these economic issues and that the at this at this point, essentially, the class compromise during the New Deal was officially dead, um, and the the Democratic Party had really opened up the door to bankers. And you have a really uh, interesting uh, portrait of Bill Clinton going to Silicon Valley to 
essentially get votes there. Uh, and the, the, the Atari Democrats, uh, if you could just talk a little bit more about this, the importance of this IT revolution and the way in which it really cemented itself uh, as the, uh, and then crystallized ultimately into the, uh, the, the, the tech bubble. Uh, sure. The, um, a lot of history of the 1990s is written in terms of polarization over cultural issues between liberal Democrats on the one hand and conservative Republicans on the other. And Clinton is thought to be the liberal Democrat and Newt Gingrich is the poster boy for the conservative Republicans. And the 1990s, for anyone who has paid attention or lived through that or studied that, is, is dominated by um, all kinds of scandals, all of which touch or, or are alleged to touch on Clinton's immorality in one form or another, his sexual escapades with women other than his wife. Uh, there was an allegation that he and his wife um, engineered or allowed to happen uh, the, the death of Vince Foster, someone who was high up in their administration. They had nothing to do with it. It was a suicide and, and has been proven to, to be such. Uh, they were accused of financial malfeasance um, involved in suspicious uh, land deals that were bringing them windfall profits. I mean, it, it, and, and then, of course, the his affair, which was real with, with Monica Lewinsky, that's going to get him impeached in, near the end of the 90s. So uh, often uh, this, the politics of the decade become simply reflect these, this big cultural divide between uh, this libertine Clinton and, and this virtuous Gingrich who was going to put Clinton in his place and perhaps be successful in removing him from office. And I don't deny the reality of these clashes. I, I lived through them. But I, I also want to insist that underlying these divisions was some quite similar thinking on the part of even the most devout antagonists, Clinton and Gingrich. Uh, they hated each other's guts. Uh, but on questions of political economy, their points of view were often indistinguishable from each other. And nowhere is this more clear than in the telecommunications reform bill of 1996, uh, where uh, they are both deeply committed to um, freeing the telecommunications industry from any kind of serious public oversight um, and allowing the tech companies to do pretty much what they wanted to do, allowing um, any user of the internet to say anything they wanted to say online without fear of, 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 of penalty. The way to understand this, I think, is that they are both caught up in this moment of technological utopianism. And we have to uh, recover that sense of utopianism that was so pervasive in the 1990s. Uh, this is when the first web browser um, launched. It was called Netscape, a forerunner to Google. Uh, Amazon debuts in the 1990s. Uh, Steve Jobs, a prodigal son, comes back to a troubled Apple and makes it into a, a world-straddling uh, corporation and organization. A tremendous period of innovation, a tremendous sense of possibility and transformation. And also this 
the belief that the internet was going to connect all Americans um, and it was going to do that in revolutionary ways and was going to give ordinary people access to knowledge and each other in ways that was going to produce peaceful habits and the ability to get along and opportunities that had one could only dream of before before that. And uh, uh, there's no sense really either in the Democratic or Republican parties that um, what about the corporations behind this tech surge? What are their interests? What do they want to get out of this? Uh, should there be serious regulation of them? Should should America's commitment to anti-monopoly preventing any one of these tech companies from becoming too large? You know, should Google be allowed to grow to the point where 300 million Americans are dependent on its search engine? Is this, do we want um, a private entity to have this kind of extraordinary power over American life? Uh, neither Clinton nor Gingrich wants to ask these questions. They think that uh, this tech revolution is so awesome and so powerful and people knew so little about where it was going to go that the only way to manage it was allow was to allow it to go of its own um, momentum and to take and to go where venture capitalists and brilliant young hackers were going to take it and, and inventors. Uh, and so uh, this becomes the moment when um, the Democratic Party uh, seals its embrace with neoliberal policy, because this is understood to be the great industry of the future. Um, Al Gore is building the super highway to tomorrow, and it's an internet highway. It, it's it, it's it's not made of of, of concrete. Uh, of course, to embrace. IT is to embrace Silicon Valley, and Silicon Valley is made up not simply of um, inventors and innovators and great programmers. It's the land of venture capital, and of course, the land of venture capital and Silicon Valley is, has to be connected to the land of Wall Street and New York City. And this is when the Democratic Party becomes embedded in this new world of of incredible market freedom and utopianism uh, that seems to be encased in this IT revolution. And the enthusiasm of Gingrich and Clinton for this industry and of freeing this ind industry's power and freeing it from public oversight, uh, their views on this are virtually indistinguishable from each other. And this is one of the high points of consensus on political economy in the 1990s. And it's at this point where um, Silicon Valley becomes a tremendous source of financial support for the Democratic Party. And this is also when the Democratic Party tries to bring together Silicon Valley and Wall Street into some kind of union, union, union of hackers and venture capitalists. It becomes one of the axes on which the Democratic fortunes are thought to be dependent. And so it's from this time forward that Democrats cultivate uh, support, um, both in Silicon Valley, San Francisco on the one hand, New York and Wall Street on the other. This is a di different Democratic Party than the one that had, than the New Deal Party that had rested so heavily on 
labor organizations, labor unions. This is a very different kind of democratic party and one that's suiting itself for a free market future and one that's tying its own future to the tremendous success of the IT revolution, the social media companies, the computer manufacturers and everything associated with it. In some respects, it was a good bet because this is the industry of our time, right? This is the most powerful and dynamic industry in the world right now. And its home is in the United States and the Democratic Party is closely associated with its, with its fortunes. But we're also living through um, the problems now uh, of a IT universe that I would say does not have nearly the amount or quality of regulation necessary to ensure that we, the people, enjoy its best fruits. Before moving on to the, the sort of the, the fall of the neoliberal order with Bush and Obama precipitating in the, the financial crisis of 08, 09, uh, simultaneously during this sort of IT revolution and the fall of the Soviet Union in the U.S., there's also the rise of mass incarceration. Um, is this rise of mass incarceration and policing, is that something that you see as uh, compatible with neoliberalism or is this just a, something separate that also was gaining steam uh, at the same time? Well, it's both. Um, I think it's not part of the design of neoliberalism that uh, you, 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 if you look at neoliberals or if you look at Republicans or even if you look at Democrats, you're not going to find people planning, hatching plans for mass incarceration about, for a new political order. Um, but the, uh, so it, it's not as though this, this was something um, in the works for 20 or 30 years. But it becomes a response to um, certain circumstances that erupt uh, and that demand a political response. What does it mean to um, release market forces in the 1970s and 80s and 90s? Well, on the one side, you have this glorious IT revolution. On the other hand, in a world that's open for capitalist manufacturing everywhere, suddenly a bunch of industries in America that had been the heartland of the American economy can no longer compete. So as the IT revolution is gearing up and all this new capital and is being deployed in this new industry, uh, other sectors of the American economy are suffering, are in decline. Automobile manufacturing, steel manufacturing, electrical engineering, um, Caterpillar, Caterpillar and Company, which I was just reading about earlier today, you know, the manufacturing of uh, construction vehicles and, and the like, all kinds of industries that had been uh, central to the American economy begin to ail. And the cities in which they were located, suddenly um, these industries are shutting down, unemployment is rising, uh, people can't get work. Um, the rates of unemployment among blacks in American cities in the American heartland, young black males unemployment rates reach 40 or 50%. Uh, the drug economy, the underground drug economy becomes alluring for people looking to be entrepreneurial and not really having alternatives 
for work for themselves. And so in this, as the neoliberal order is rising, uh, quite a lot of um, urban areas are becoming um, difficult to live in, difficult to find work. Um, municipalities don't have enough money as industries leave and as tax uh, and as people are no longer paying taxes because they don't have jobs. Um, they can't provide the same level of social services. They can't provide the same level of police protection. Uh, and so uh, crime rises and um, disorder comes to characterize life in cities. And the question becomes, what are we going to do about this? Now, during the New Deal era, the response would have been, we need social welfare to cushion the effects of deindustrialization. Um, uh, we need jobs programs as was characteristic of the New Deal to put lots of people to work who otherwise can't find work. If this had been the New Deal order, that would have been the response. But this is a neoliberal order and they don't like that kind of state intervention in the economy. They want the economy to be on its own market freedom. Now, among those people who had advocated market freedom, and here we come back to neo-Victorianism, there had been concerns that not everybody would could manage their market freedom well. And there had always been suspicions that perhaps there are certain individuals, certain groups in the population who do not have the requisite discipline or do not have the kind of family life that will instill the virtue and moral quality that is required to be a good neo-Victorian. And this is the moment where um, very damaging and um, ugly discourse begins to develop about the urban underclass, about a certain group of people who become so separated from work and ordinary family life that they can no longer function well in a market economy. And gradually and implicitly and then more explicitly questions are raised about the black component of the underclass, even though the person who invented the concept of the underclass did not want to give a racial connotation to it. By the 1980s, it has a racial con connotation. If you're using the word underclass, you're refer referring to poor blacks who no longer are seen as being capable of being brought into civilization. And if you reach that point of thinking that there are some people who are not going to in whom we cannot instill these neo-Victorian virtues, then locking them up becomes a palatable alternative. Uh, you begin to think we must deprive certain groups of their freedom or certain people of their freedom so a market economy can function properly and freely. It's a paradox, right? You strip people of their freedom so that the market economy can function freely. Now, this had been a tenant of neoliberal thought for some time, and it also been a tenant of classical liberal thought. In other words, when liberalism was born, the question was always raised, can, can everyone in, in, in the society be trusted to live virtuously and, and have the proper discipline? And liberals had always said, well, not had always, but it often said, well, no, there are certain groups that probably can't handle it. There were women. There were children who were not given full rights. There were people in the 19th century, people who call themselves liberals in America, who doubted the capacity of African-Americans to, uh, to enjoy the fruits of market freedom. 
there had always been a discourse that in order to be free, you need order. And if the order was not naturally coming from families and self-discipline, then some institution, including the state, would then be empowered to impose order. And mass incarceration is a form of imposing order and removing those individuals uh, from society who are deemed incapable of having the discipline to behave properly in market circumstances. You, re re you re what, is it, what does it mean to incarcerate people? It means multiple things. It means you're stripping them of their freedom, their dignity. You're also stripping them of their freedom to participate in market exchange because they can't buy and sell like those, like those who are not in jail. So this begins to gain popularity, mass incarceration, as a way of securing the blessings of market freedom. So I would say it's not intrinsic to neoliberalism. And it was not planned as a component. But one can see certain habits of thought that are characteristic neoliberal habits of thought. You need um, discipline, you need order, you need individuals to behave in a certain way. And if you lose confidence that those individuals will behave in a certain way, then for the sake of market freedom and capitalism flourishing, you in effect can, can have a justification for removing them from society. So this becomes a, a paradoxical feature of the neoliberal age, but comprehensible in terms of, um, of neoliberal thought. So it was not by design, it was not intrinsic, but it becomes a uh, characteristic of the neoliberal age and an ugly characteristic of the neoliberal age. And it becomes a way of managing markets without solving the underlying problem, because you can't lock up as many people as the United States was locking up for as many years as they were being locked up. I mean, how long can that go on before people begin to ask the basic question, how can this society call itself a free society if it's locking up more individuals in absolute terms and, and proportionately than virtually any other society on the face of the earth? So it manages, neoliberalism has a way of managing the problem, but not of solving the problem. And uh, that's how I try to understand how the neoliberal age becomes also an age of mass incarceration. One has to confront the problem of mass incarceration uh, in, the, in the era of the neoliberal order. And I try and do that um, by treating it as I've uh, been discussing with you for the last few minutes. When George W. Bush gets elected, I think something very interesting that you point out about him is that George W. Bush is uh, sort of departs from just pure neo-Victorian thinking, that he actually embraces some of the diversity rhetoric and multicultural rhetoric of Clinton, uh, specifically under this idea of of homeownership and this idea that anyone, regardless of their race, can be a homeowner, and he even goes down to uh, to Florida and he gives a speech talking about how Latino people are vital members of the American society. Um, what is it about uh, Bush's push for a ownership society in the form of homeownership uh, that is? very much embedded in this idea of, of neoliberalism and its eventual implosion in the financial crisis 
that ends up being the main source of the fall of the neoliberal order. Bush is very committed to the idea of a home ownership society, and it 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 fits with uh, neo-Victorian principles. Uh, how do you teach people to be disciplined and look after their finances and not take on too much debt? The, the idea is homeowners will regard these matters more seriously than than rent than renters will because they will have invested a significant amount of their own resources in their in their house and they understand the, the asset value and 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 the possible possible wealth that can emanate from that over the course of one lifetime or if it's in the family for several generations or across several lifetimes um, he married this to a commitment to racial equality he's not often given credit for being interested in racial equality but i i find him um, um quite interesting on that score uh, and uh, he he appointed quite a number of African Americans to his administration. Uh, as you mentioned, he's uh, was exceptionally comfortable among Latinos and uh, could speak some Spanish. And his time in Texas, he interacted with a lot of Latinos and very very comfortably. And uh, and and so he wanted to find a way to bring blacks and Latinos into his Republican coalition. And he and Carl Rove, his key advisor, were imagining making the Republican party a majority party for perpetuity. And to do that, they needed some minority participation. What he was opposed to was the regulatory new deal state, uh, big government, um, big welfare payments, uh, the government acting as a redistributor of wealth from the rich to the poor. He, he didn't want any of that as a, that's a good Republican, but he thought that if he could extend ownership and penetrate the ranks of um, minority populations with home ownership, uh, he would, he would give uh, people of color and, and white people in America more of a common basis, more of a common stake in America, and he was conscious that he would be extending what had been the privileges of being white in America, because the rates of home ownership among whites far exceeded those of people of color. He would be extending what had been a benefit of of whites to all Americans, irrespective of of color or race. So, uh, uh, and at the same time, he would do it in the form where it would not be a handout, which he objected to. It would not corrode moral character, it would enhance moral character by teaching people and families the responsibilities of home ownership and the importance of paying and having the money to pay for that monthly mortgage bill. Uh, But he also was fighting a war, and I don't know if if we'll have time to talk about that war in Iraq, probably won't, but it's, it's a big war. And he also passed a tax cut that he was unwilling to repeal. Uh, and so the question is, um, would he be able to expand homeownership with, without expanding, um, without spending real money on it? And he believed he could, and uh, he believed the market would solve all problems. And he encouraged um, government lenders known as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to um, loosen their lending regulations. Uh, so poor and poorer people could avail themselves of mortgages. He expanded the number of what were called subprime loans in the mortgage portfolios 
Uh, he dealt with the insufficiency of poor people having money for homes by allowing them to borrow more than would have been the case previously. In other words, he was embarking on this vast expansion of home ownership without increasing the wealth of the home buyers. How do you how do you expand their access to home ownership without increasing the wealth of the home buyers? You do that by allowing them to take on more risk. Uh, and that's, in fact, what was happening. And uh, and he was encouraged to, to do this uh, by a, a new kind of financial engineering uh, on Wall Street and other markets around the world. And they believed that the computer revolution had, had put so much information within their grasp and they had come, become so much more sophisticated about uh, packaging securities that uh, Wall Street could tolerate uh, and the housing industry could tolerate a lot more risk than it had once tolerated. Uh, because um, you would take a risky person and you would bundle their risk with the with the risk of other homeowners that was not as large, or you'd bundle together a bunch of subprime mortgages and you would distribute it over such a huge base of international investors that no one would be buying more than a very small slice of this some subprime mortgage bundle. In other words, you could spread risk so far, you could dissolve it in a, in a world of securities and no one would ever notice. And the conceit of this was that you could manage these markets so well that you could allow borrowers to take on a lot more risk without really having to worry about that risk at some point overwhelming the market. So it was uh, the ultimate form of hubris uh, the belief in a kind of market perfection, a belief, a per, belief in a, perf, or a perfect kind of market management that was achievable under with the tools that the IT revolution had been made possible and had made possible. And so uh, it, for a while, this seems to be working because more and more people are entering the housing market and they're 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 bidding up the prices of homes and uh, even if someone is highly leveraged buying a home if the value of the home is going up they will be able to sell it at some point if things get bad and and recoup what they had invested and pay back their debts well here you have the construction of a bubble and it's only a matter of time before it's going to burst and the entire world had been conscripted into this housing mania scheme and so when the bubble burst it involved not just the united states and it involved not just um bush's uh dream of home ownership home ownership fairly distributed across all racial groups in the united states it engulfed the entire world and what unfolded in the financial crash of 2008 2009 was a global crisis that in its global synchronicity synchronicity had never happened with that rapidity before. Suddenly the whole world uh, was engulfed in a terrible financial crisis um, that upends the neoliberal order uh, and that causes people to question its core principles for the first time. Uh, and this is where the hegemony of neoliberal thinking cracks in which its core principles begin to be challenged, in which the suffering of 
people who lost their investments in their homes is so great. And the and also people can see that those the bankers who had made these loans were not made to suffer. They recoup their losses quite quickly, quite quickly, whereas those who had invested riskily in homes lose their homes, lose their savings. And then in the financial crash, often lose their jobs. Uh, and so this creates, explodes <clears throat> the fiction that had um, carried neoliberalism through its heyday. The fiction was that there would be no victims, there would be no people left out of the neoliberal dream. If you, if you unleash market forces everywhere, everyone would ultimately be a beneficiary. And the crash of 2008, 2009 gives the lie to that. And that cracks the hegemony of neoliberal thought, cracks the power of the neoliberal order, and allows voices once again consigned to the periphery to storm back into the mainstream and to convulse politics powerfully in the second decade of the 21st century. So after uh, George W. Bush's administration, he obviously ends his presidency, extremely unpopular. It's an extremely unpopular president. Obama comes in promising to be this anti-war progressive uh, candidate. And his presidency, of course, is initially marked by the need to bail out the, or the decision rather, to bail out the banks. Um, and many of his advisors were the very same, some of the same similar people uh, in the Clinton administration. So if you could just talk a little bit about Obama's presidency, uh, its relationship to neoliberalism and these challengers, uh, both on the left in the form of Bernie Sanders, and then ultimately on the right in the form of Trump that helped to, you know, dig the, the grave or have started to help dig the grave of the neoliberal order? Well, I found it um, somewhat difficult to uh, fit Obama into my story of the rise and fall of the neoliberal order. I, I've done a lot of other work on <clears throat> race and nationality in American life, and um, I have a whole book on that. And And in 2017, uh, wrote a uh, uh, wrote a new chapter uh, for that book. It's called American Crucible: Race and Nation in the 20th Century. Although then it became Race and Nation in the 20th and 21st Centuries. I added a new chapter that that took the story from its original endpoint in 2000 right through till 2017, which is the moment when Trump takes office. And I called that last chapter the Age of Obama. And I think um, I, like many other people, saw him as a transformative figure in American politics, which in many respects he was. First African-American president, um, and he, he got to the White House as an, uh, um, sooner than most of us thought that any African-American would. Tremendously capable, charismatic uh, marvelous or orator and with the capacity to inspire a lot of people with the belief in America and the possibility of building a, 
a better future. So I, I was one of those who uh, believed in Obama's promise as a transformational figure in American politics. And hence, I called the chapter I wrote on him, not in the book that you're interviewing me about, but in a previous book. I called it The Age of Obama. And as I was wrestling with the 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 triumph and then fall of the neoliberal order, I, I was unsure where do I fit Obama into the story. And as I began to fit him in or to understand where he would be fit, his transformational promise began to shrink. I think it's not just for me that this has happened. It's happened for a lot of other Americans as well. And uh, and the more I looked at his first year in office, uh, the more I began to see him not as the first president of a new age, but as the last president of the neoliberal order. You asked me before, who's the first president of the neoliberal order? And you suggested Carter, perhaps. Well, now I'll say perhaps Obama is the last president of the neoliberal order. And uh, what is so striking about his his first year in office is the degree to which, uh, for economic advice, he brings back really the same team that had been Clinton's key economic team in the 1990s. This is the Rubin team. Rubin himself doesn't come back. I mean, he's he's... He's older by this time and doesn't want another job in Washington. But Larry Summers was close to Reuben. Um, Tim- Timothy Geisner was close to Reuben. Peter Orzag was close to Reuben. Uh, it's, it, um, Obama makes a decision to reconstitute the Clinton economic team that had been responsible for bringing the Democratic Party on board for the triumph of the neoliberal order. The neoliberal order had, been, had arguably been responsible for allowing this financial crash to happen. And now Obama is bringing back that same team to get America out of the mess that the neoliberal order had plunged the country into. One can understand um, why he did that. I mean, the there were moments in the fall of 2008 where it looked like the entire financial system of the globe was going to seize up, that nothing was going to work anymore. And Obama had to live with that, you know, looking at the figures of potential complete financial collapse across 2008, 2009. Um, By nature, he's, He's got a conservative temperament. That doesn't mean he's conservative politically, but he's cautious. He's careful. One of his famous lines that he said informally to people is, don't do stupid stuff, which is another way of saying, think before you act and make sure that you're not being rash and you're not going to set in motion unanticipated consequences. So one can see how a cautious man faced with financial Armageddon in the world on his watch, and not of his making, would choose an experienced team that had been through the fire before, get them to work. And one can even say, maybe it made sense to save the banks first, if if your first concern is the complete international collapse of finance. Maybe your priority should be getting the American banks back on their feet again. Maybe. 
But there were problems with this. The banks had engineered this calamity. They had been they had been full participants in the issuance of way too much credit, way too much subcrime, subprime credit, um, issuing these derivatives, which no really no one really who bought them really understood, didn't really understand the risks. Uh, the amount of money required to bail out large financial institutions was approaching the level of obscene. Uh, no bank was broken up. No bank was nationalized. No banker was even made to come before Congress and run the gauntlet of kind of public shaming. Uh, and quite quickly, um, uh, banks recovered. Uh, within two or three years, the stock market had recovered all the value it had lost, but employment had not recovered. Um, wages had not recovered. Uh, housing remained underwater for years. Uh, the, the number of houses underwater where the mortgage payments were worth more than the assessed value of the house I mean, this crisis went on for years. And you know what? Mainstream noticed. Mainstream noticed that the privileged players in the American economy were being bailed out. And they were not. And this happened on Obama's watch. Um, now, he also had a health care plan, which he wanted to make his priority. But I wonder at one point in the book, and, and the health care plan ended up being a complicated and then important achievement. But I wonder in the book whether he made the right strategic decision, whether he should have poured more energy in terms of ensuring a more equitable recovery between rich and poor. And so Obama ended up in his... Um, first term ended up contributing to the sense that um, there were people who were advantaged by the neoliberal project. They were part of a global elite. For them, the suffering had been passing and temporary. And then there was Main Street. Main Street, I'm using metaphorically, not a literal Main Street in a small town, but ordinary Americans, men and women, um, who did not have access to the global corridors of power, to the global corridors of finance, to the global institutions that if you were part of those institutions, you could be launched into this global neoliberal world, which was still functioning pretty well or re recovered itself pretty well. You were on the outside looking in. Um, you did not have much opportunity. You had lost a lot of money. People in your family had lost jobs. And you were no longer to you were no longer able to believe the promise of neoliberalism, which is that it would live all boats and it 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 would benefit everyone the rich and the poor and this and 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 this is the issue that goes unaddressed in obama's first term and the divides between the rich and the poor widen uh, inequality widens between the rich and the poor uh, and people begin to ask whether the kind of economy and the relationship between politics and economy that had that had prevailed in the U.S., whether this should be allowed to continue. 
Uh, and by 2012 and 2013, there are challengers to neoliberalism of the sort that one hadn't seen. Elizabeth Warren talking about the evil banks winning um, uh, a senatorship in Massachusetts. Um, the uh, a mayor of New York who had um, honeymooned in Nicaragua and Cuba in the late 1890s and I mean the, the late 1980s and early 1990s um, uh, he gets elected mayor of New York Bernie Sanders begins to attract attention Bernie Sanders was saying nothing new in 2012 2013 2014 uh, suddenly he has a voice and is being listened to in ways he had never had before and he arrays himself as a critic of capitalism, as a critic of free markets, as a critic of those who privilege capitalists and their interests over ordinary men and women. Um, suddenly he is being given a hearing that he had never received before. And then he makes a surprisingly successful run for the nomination for president in 2016. He's not gonna win, Hillary is going to win, but he is by far the more dynamic player in that election on the Democratic side. And he is setting the terms of debate in a way that a socialist in American politics rarely had before. And I consider him to be the second most successful socialist ever in American politics, second only to Eugene Victor Debs, who still has the reputation of being the most prominent and successful socialist. Uh, but his his heyday was 100 years before Bernie's. And this also opens up a path for Trump on the right. Um, and, you know, Trump has, you know, has many characteristics to him. Um, and often it seemed as though he had very few heartfelt political convictions except to bully people. But he had certain beliefs that were that he had sustained um, across his adult life. Didn't like free trade at all. Uh, had no illusions about free markets because he had been forever manipulating free markets. Um, he was suspicious of globalization. Uh, and he understood that um, globalization and neoliberalism had eviscerated America's manufacturing base, leaving many people who, who, who he considered good Americans, these are all white, working class Americans, leaving them without a place in American society. So he becomes a force from the right. And neither Sanders nor Trump would have been given the time of day politically when the neoliberal order was riding high. And the fact that they come with such force from the margins to the mainstream of American politics in the 20 teens suggest to me that the neoliberal order was cracking and voices that had been on the periphery, much as neoliberal voices have been on, on the periphery until the 70s, socialist voices on the left, populist voices on the right that have been contained on the margins, irrelevant in the mainstream of American politics. Suddenly when a, neo, when a political order cracks, these voices, which had been consigned, constrained, ignored, marginalized, have an opportunity to be heard 
in ways they had not been heard before. And they become big voices in the 20 teens and speak to the convulsions that characterized that recently passed decade. It's worth, uh, I, uh, in the book, I look at a speech that um, Trump gives to Pennsylvania steelworkers in 2016 during the campaign. And he's appealing to them. He says, you guys used to have good jobs. They've been taken from you. The industrial heartland has been undermined by global elites. I'm going to restore that world for you. I'm going to get good jobs back. Um, I'm going to make America be about you rather than coastal elites. What's interesting to me about that speech, if you didn't know who was speaking and if you just looked at the words, they could have been spoken by Sanders as well as Trump. And it and it, it speaks to um, this very powerful populist impulse that is released, and that speaks with conviction of all the people that the neoliberal order had not benefited, and that the neoliberal order should pass, so that those who had been excluded from benefits and opportunity can now begin to enjoy them. Now there were profound differences between Sanders and Trump that I don't need to elaborate on except to say that Sanders' campaign had none of the ugly ethno-nationalism of the Trump campaign. Um, you know, Trump's populism was for whites only. Sanders wanted to construct a multicultural populism available to all ordinary and poor people in America. So they were very different in that way. But they often were hammering the neoliberal order with similar critiques. And under this pressure and other movements, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, uh, this way, this order that had been dominating and arranging, arranging politics begins to crack apart. And that is the story of the last two chapters of my book about the fall of the neoliberal order. This book is, you know, at, at the time of our speaking, it, it hasn't yet come out. I believe that comes out officially on April 5th, if I'm not mistaken. That's um, correct. But yes, but the book is available now for order um, online, if you if if you wish, and if you want to, or to order a copy for yourself um, from your favorite bookstore. What is your hope about the impact your your book will make, especially in the, the dialogue around neoliberalism? Definitely in, you know, Many of the in the, in the Twitter Twitter sphere, uh, neoliberalism is a, is a a hot topic. Uh, though I still think that there's a lot of confusion about what neoliberalism is. Um, do you is there a particular audience or a particular group of people, thinkers, anyone that you would like to read your book or that you're trying to reach, or uh, is this a book that is geared more to more so towards historians? rather than the general public? Well, I, I hope that uh, every author wants their book to be read by more rather than fewer people and by a more diverse reading public sure, as opposed totally. to a, a more homogeneous uh, reading public. Uh, one never knows how it will fall. Uh, my hopes for the book, I hope that um, uh, 
people will find the term neoliberalism useful for understanding a political order that has dominated American life uh, for 40 years. I hope it will um, launch discussions about neoliberalism and what it means. Um, if you've been reading about neoliberalism yourself and you, it sounds as though you have, you know that I take some positions about neoliberalism which are at odds with how other people interpret neoliberalism. I think I would be disappointed if, if my book didn't launch debates about what neoliberalism is, whether neoliberalism is falling. Uh, so I hope what I'm hoping for is um, engagement. I hope the book reaches beyond the academy of professors and students to, um, uh, to a more general reading public that is trying to understand uh, where America has been these last 40 years and where it may, may be going. Uh, I am a historian, so I wouldn't put a lot of stock in my prediction about the future. But I do think I make a convincing case that the political order that has dominated uh, American life for 40 years is in the process of coming apart, that we are at an inflection point that a new political ideas uh, and new political for and new political institutions uh, and new political campaigns are have been or are being unleashed uh, and that uh, we are at the cusp of a new political moment and perhaps a, a new political order and I hope my book will um, help people to understand this moment in new ways. Uh, and that through examining the way in which a political order organizes itself and then comes apart, they'll be able to see themselves in a very interesting and dynamic moment in American political life. Um, uh, and thus, um, be able to understand this moment and perhaps act upon it with influence. Well, Gary, thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books Network. It was fantastic talking to you. I really cannot recommend this book enough. I hope people read it and I look forward to seeing the responses to it. I'm sure they'll be very interesting and I'm sure you will stimulate lots of debate. So thank you. Thank you, Caleb. I, I appreciate um, having the chance to interview with you and also the care with which you have obviously read the book. So thank you very much. 